You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. When we started Monster Talk back in 2009, I wanted to get Darren Nash on because he was one of the few scientists I knew who also kept up with cryptozoology. He helped us make many connections, such as to his former teacher, Dave Martell, who taught us about pterosaurs and the legendary rope of Papua New Guinea. Darren has had several appearances here, and we're excited to have him back again to discuss a project he's doing, which is focused on the cryptids described in the writing of Bernard Huvelmans. It's a big art project, and it's over on his Patreon page, which I will link to in the show notes. Darren's been working his butt off during the pandemic, including contributing to the newest David Attenborough BBC dinosaur series, Prehistoric Planet. I'll put links to that in the show notes as well. There are some big changes coming to Monster Talk soon, ones which we will introduce in our next episode, and we hope you like them because they're going to mean more content with more frequency. But for now, let's get one more old-school classic Monster Talk going, as after 12 years we wind up with what I've been thinking of as an absurdly long season one of this show. Monster Talk. Uh, welcome back, Darren. So it's, it's good to hear from yeah. you again. So, good to, yeah, to so- chat again. Yeah, well, thank you for the invite, and it's a pleasure to to hear both of your fine voices. Thank you. Oh, yours too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think the last time we talked, we were making fun of Jurassic Park or Jurassic World or something like that. I think, uh, or I was making fun of it, and you were being <laughs> quite sensible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that rings a bell. Yeah, Which so. is typical, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the reason I reached out to you is because you've got this new series you're doing on Patreon uh, where you're doing artwork uh, based on hypothetical cryptids of Bernard Huvelmont. Uh, <laughs> so I wanted to say, first of all, it's very impressive. I'm looking forward to the final project. But can you tell our listeners what's this about? What's going on with this? Where does it come from? Where are you going with it? 
<laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, a couple of years back, I decided to, I forget why, I started a thing on Twitter, um, Crypto Mega Threads, where I wanted to, I, well, I, Twitter's, I think, a great, is it right to call Twitter a medium? It's a, it's the best. It's a really good platform for telling long form stories in in small chunks because the curse of uh, the infinite scroll means that yes, on the internet <laughs> we're always prepared to keep on looking at another thing, you know, another bit of information. So I thought if you break down a long tedious story into a thousand, you know, di- easily digestible bite size, you know, sentence size fragments, then you know, you know, every idiot is going to read that. And then uh, so. Uh, yeah, started for fun. I just thought, let's tell the story behind one of the famous, you know, Loch Ness monster photos. That really got legs. That became quite big, and uh, I really enjoyed doing it. And I've done enough of those, broken down the, the backstory to a specific cryptozoological case that um i've been thinking yeah the, the, I, sh- I should keep on coming up with long form stories that I can do this to. And then for a while, I've been mm-hmm. thinking. I really quite like the fact that in 1986, the so-called father of cryptozoology, the founder of modern uh, cryptozoology, Bernard Hoovermans, various different pronunciations of his of his name, as you've alluded to, Blake. Um, yeah, he came up with this long list of cryptids, and his summaries of them are quite short. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to actually go through them point by point? So I thought, as a uh, Twitter mega thread, let's do that. You know, each entry gets. Um, uh you know like a, a, a single tweet and a single image but i thought well i don't want to keep on recycling other people's artwork i want to do my own artwork and therein lies mm-hmm. the problem because if i draw all 100 and uh, i think it's 125 ish cryptids i can't remember how many are in the, the list 138 something like that wow. i'm looking at, looking at the list now um yeah i thought wouldn't it be fun to um i've i've just about developed due to other projects i've developed just about enough skills in various pieces of um, software to composite my illustrations to sort of have them overlapping I really enjoy these uh, images where you have you know like 50 different representative species in a group of animals and you sort of see them standing next to each other at scale so that wouldn't it be fun to do that for the cryptids and therein lies uh, the the backstory to this ridiculous project which uh, it takes me a. If I were to sit down and do it full time, it would take me like three days to do a single drawing, and I don't have the opportunity to do to do it full time. It's the odd hour here and there. So we're talking about like years and years and years of work um, that I'm putting into this in the background, right? But, because of your completely unambitious other work. <laughs> quite. I'm not exactly sat around twiddling my thumbs, so. Yes, this is another background project that I shouldn't have taken on, but now I'm too deep to uh, yeah, yeah. sunk time fallacy. I can't give up on it now. My only follow-up would be that you could eventually produce a, a single composite image that would be along the lines of you know some of those George Perez comics where he's got all the heroes and villains in one giant picture. Yeah. You know, so. Oh, yeah. like Sergeant Peppers or something. Of or like Sergeant Peppers. Yeah. It, yeah. it will look. It will look exactly like that. It will be like it's so big because it's, if it's 140-ish creatures, many of which are obviously large objects, it will be a large thing, and it would work well as like a big a mural style. Uh, landscape formatted poster so that's how i imagine it i think it's like two meters long which hopefully i can do and i also um think it's probably worth uh putting it in out in book form so like you'll have your your illustration on one page and your 
text on the other uh, other side and um the text will be similar to what i've done in other projects which we've discussed before like the cryptozoological book i did with mamo kozman and um, john conway where first of all we say um why cryptozoologists developed this particular view of the creature what they based it on you know that the, the mm-hmm. key accounts and then finally you know how do we actually interpret this take on it what what's going on here what does it actually right. mean so uh, there's easily enough scope yeah. there for sort of a thousand words for each cryptid. Very exciting. So more than a hundred thousand words. Wow. What? <laughs> Easy. <laughs> Very ambitious. And Darren, we're not going to go through all 138 cryptids, but we're wondering if we could talk about a select few of them. Uh, so to begin with, could you tell us a bit about the giant beaver and Blake has put a, a note here into the, the questions and said this one really amuses him. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, that that really does. Um, that particular creature gets right to the core of the issue here, which is that um, uh, now without rambling and meandering too much, um, I, you know, all three of us here will know that the uh, as 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 we've already kind of alluded to, Bernard Hoovermund is seen as the the sort of air quotes air quotes father of cryptozoology, as the guy who kind of got mainstream pelts and paws, flesh and blood um, cryptozoology kind of off the ground. Obviously, not not the only person that did that. Um, he, he he, you know, he is one of several people who um, wrote, uh, you know, had a similar take on the subject. Willie Lee, think- Willie Lay, uh, and then exactly, Ivan yeah. Sanderson. Yeah, but yeah, but no, he, but yeah. I think I agree with you, though. He is, if you had to pick a father, he's he's a good candidate. Yes. Now, on, on the one hand, you know, this is the tangent. I don't want to, this isn't the time for it. But today, I think if you did a straw poll among younger people who regard themselves as interested in cryptozoology, I don't think they necessarily would even have heard of him or know of his work because of for various reasons cryptozoology mm-hmm. is clearly drifting away into something else that's that's a whole nother subject i don't want to touch on that now i don't want to discuss that now. i just want to touch on that point um however to those of us who think of it as this flesh and blood is uh, you know field that essentially started out as hey everyone let's try and keep this within mainstream zoology hooverman's is seen as uh, accurately or not he has he has he is he is seen as this qualified zoologist who tried to make the subject a part of mainstream zoology that was his aim so the thinking among those of us who know that is well he's the guy who's approaching it from the serious natural history zoological angle so therefore his cryptids that he endorses and his interpretations of the cryptids he's endorsing is therefore you know uh, relatively as empirical as you can be in this subject. So presumably, you know, the animals in his list are going to be the the targets, the cryptozoological targets that are, that we generally, you know, again, if you did a straw poll among people who regard themselves as cryptozoologists, you would think they're creatures, mm-hmm. hypothetical creatures that are generally have some fairly, you know, firm backup as uh, the, the, there potentially is a real creature here. You know, your various sea monsters that have been described by more than one person and your yetis and that kind of thing right however Mm. (laughs) right and this is where we come back to the giant beaver it's like (laughs) his list is is worryingly odd because um he he does have the classic cryptids in there the superstars that have always been regarded as firm targets of the field 
but then he just has a, an entry in there where he'll say and on the giant beaver he he says without actually reading it digging it out from the, the paper and reading it he says something like yeah there's also this bunch of like weird north american creatures that are in the literature and they include giant snakes giant beavers flying men and a whole bunch of other stuff and they might be real as well and and that's all he says in the entry a, a slightly less vernacular language than that but he clearly read um lauren coleman's um one of lauren's several books on mysteries of the united states you know published in the 70s or 80s and that you know there's there's mothman and other sort of alleged winged humanoids in there there's these giant snakes that aren't supposed to be native to north america at all and there's the giant beaver so um uh lauren and patrick huige provided the most amount of detail on this alleged cryptid in their book from the 2000s uh field guide to lake monsters um and other mysteries of the deep i can't remember its exact title that was the field guide to lake monsters, sea serpents, and other mystery denizens of the deep. And according to those researchers, uh, Coleman and Huige, and I think probably their late colleague Mark Hall, um, there <laughs> are, number one, indigenous accounts that describe a creature that sounds like castoroides a gigantic a sort of black bear sized beaver known as a pleistocene fossil and number two there are accounts from the 1800s and early 1900s from various parts of north america that might pertain to sightings of a giant beaver um i i, I remember in the the coleman and huige book they have a, a section on how um uh the the person who was the founder of mormonism uh, is that joseph smith yes joseph Feel, smith. Was, was in yep. brigham young yeah 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 i think i'm thinking of okay mm-hmm. i yep. think it's joseph smith who <laughs> apparently <laughs> was a a real advocate of the existence of the giant beaver this was we're taking seriously the idea that castoroides the fossil beaver was still extant somewhere in I don't know if it was in the Salt Lake, Salt Lake City region, but uh, somewhere in that part of the US. And it's really hard to... I, I mean, yeah, the, obviously, obviously the, the sceptical take on this is... Well, wait a minute. The, the indigenous accounts you have in mind don't really describe anything that sounds like castoroides. And I'm not really convinced that the, um, the alleged eyewitness accounts from the 1900s uh 1800s and 1900s really describe anything like that but nevertheless this mm-hmm. creature is in there and um yeah hooverman's again seems to have been laissez-faire enough kind of relaxed <laughs> enough about it to say mm. yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna chuck this in my list as well so so there you go that's that's kind of why the the, <laughs> the, giant, the giant beaver castoroides is in there mm. interesting if I, if I had to lodge a complaint, I'd say, where's the damn evidence? <laughs> <laughs> now, interestingly enough, we do know that Castoroides, the giant Pleistocene beaver, did not did not construct lodges nor dams. Why would it? It's so big, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is a thing that 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 particular lineage of beavers didn't do, un- unlike the the modern. Let's move on to the Chinese bear. Which yeah. I found very intriguing because mm. I didn't realize that was in his list. And I've, I have 
uh, I've read parts of his book for you know research purposes, but I've never read end to end one of the uh, what's the name of his big book? Uh, is it on, on the Trail the of Unknown Animals? Is that right or something yeah, like on that? On the track, yeah, on the track, yeah. So uh, I didn't realize the Chinese bear was in there, but that's not a cryptid the way we would normally think. It, it's more and more like a thylacine, where it's a mm. it's a maybe he thought it was extinct, or do you know what's going on there? Why extinct, was why, yeah. why include that? Yeah, uh, he, he hasn't. A lot of the things that are in this list, so it's published in 1986 in the journal Cryptozoology, um, this particular article. He published a revised version in uh, the early, the mid-90s, I think 96, where he, where he mm-hmm. changed some of his takes on certain of the cryptids. And, and Carl Schuker provided an, provided an updated and revised version in, I think, 1998, a lot of the creatures in here aren't necessarily in Hoovelmans's other writings, or at least those that are available to us, because as you probably know, um, many of his works remain untranslated from the French or weren't actually ever compiled into book form. Um, so the, yeah, this, the bear that we have in mind here, the Bay Shong, um, this, this again is in keeping with what I said a moment ago about Hoovelmans being slightly odd and inconsistent in terms of what he's actually endorsing as a cryptid because this is this Beishong it's a it's a pale colored bear uh, from two provinces of China uh, uh, Wuhan and uh, I forgot the other one and um, 10 uh, Beijing is that, is that a province? Well, whatever they're, they're kept at Wuhan and Beijing. Those are cities, not provinces. Right. And yeah, ten specimens of this bear have been kept in captivity, and there are taxiderm specimens of it. It's been scientifically described. It's been given a scientific name in 1977. It was called Selenarctos shenonensis, I think. And um, so, wait a second. Like my understanding, according to Hoovermans's writings are that a cryptid, a creature that is within the remit of cryptozoology, is a, a an alleged creature that's known from anecdotal data of some kind. So people claim they've seen it or people have stories about it, but we don't have specimens of this that demonstrate its you know, biological reality, right? That's what a cryptid is. So if you're now talking about a bear that you've got um, dead specimens of, you've got you've got to make museums and you've got live specimens in in zoos i'm like that's not a cryptid at all i mean and the there's a controversy about this animal as to what kind of bear it is and that's why hoovermans is kind of including it in his list but but where do you draw the line between you know like that's the case for loads of animals there's a huge number of animals where people have had disagreements over uh is it is it a species in its own right? Is it a subspecies of a known species? Is it a colour morph of a known species? I mean, there's there's so many different different examples of that that kind of thing. And this bear falls into mm-hmm. that camp. I'm pretty sure from the photos and the published descriptions that Beishong is a pale variant of the Asian black bear. So there's a species called the Asian black bear. It's a known species. And like the uh, American black bear, which is not particularly closely related to you, but like that species, it has pale coloured, a pale coloured population. 
which is pale due to you know peculiar genetics and maybe adaptation to a specific environment or what have you and that's what we're talking about there we're not talking about an animal that is known only from anecdote is known only from from stories so to me it's like when you include that animal in the list well now uh dr hoovermans you have opened the floodgates to like a huge number of 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 forms of animal life of kind of slightly controversial technical zoological standing they're not cryptids at all and it seems odd to me that that was that that was included in the list well speaking of where do you draw the lion a a lot of big cats where's he going with this where's he going yeah yeah. well i'm i'm particularly interested in the uh, the blue tiger yeah tell us about that Right. Yeah. Well, well, that's that's along the the uh, kind of similar lines. It's it's a tiger. That, that wasn't that wasn't my attempt at a joke. Um, although this one. Yeah. So where where do we do we say this is a cryptid or not? So there are mm-hmm. a very small number of eyewitness accounts of uh what's been called the i think it's the the fujian or maltese i forget why it's called maltese because none to do with malta but um yeah a mythical blue tiger a semi-mythical blue tiger seen in fujian province um and a true properly blue as in like no i'm not talking about like it's on the bluish side of, of, of orange, you know, like it fits within mm-hmm. regular tiger anatomy, but no, a truly blue morph. Um, and uh, I, I cannot remember the name of the, the key witness, but there's a, uh, a key European hunter who observes this creature and describes it and wrote it up in a couple of books. And for me, that, is i wouldn't say alarm bells are ringing but it's kind of i'm not convinced that there is a uh a particularly robust body of um observers that are reporting this animal i the the observer concerned wrote a book on it and um you know kind of kind of made a career out of saying there hey there is hey everyone there is this blue tiger that uh, i've seen the 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 best story is quite good about it because he's saying it's a bit embarrassing that i've forgotten his name i don't have any notes in front of me or anything but the um that was work by harry r caldwell and roy chapman andrews their book the blue tiger was published in 1924 the person concerned is saying that uh, he's hunting tigers and his uh chinese assistant says to him Hey, look over there. There's a there's a blue tiger, <laughs> and he says, "No, no, that's a man. That's not. That's the only thing that could be wearing blue in here in this jungle." I said, "No, really, look, it's a blue tiger." And it's sure enough, there through the foliage, I saw the bright blue of uh, of the tiger, and uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sl- you know, call call me you know a, a cynic or what have you, but when you find that someone writes one or two books on their favorite mystery animal. Um, if only he'd had some mechanism by which to capture or kill a specimen. I, I think it's universally agreed by everyone who's written about it, and by the observer that we're talking about here, is universally agreed that this would be, if it's real, this would be a colour morph of a known species. Hmm. I think I think it's agreed that it would be, yeah, like a, a blue variant 
of the uh, I, I don't know which which uh, subspecies of tiger specifically presumably the chinese tiger mm. so um again is is that a cryptid i mean maybe because mm-hmm. but maybe not because again written into the remit of what cryptids are is they're meant to be a form of distinct taxonomic status um mm-hmm. I, I don't know i mean the, the, there has always been this ambiguity about whether we should include new color morphs or what have you so uh right i mean you certainly can get when it comes to domestic cats bluish uh colored cats like russian blues and burmese cats mm. so um, I can imagine it, you know, a type of grey or something. But anyway, speaking of cats, I'm also interested in the aquatic cat and mermaid. Can you tell us a bit about uh-huh. them? Yes. Um, so you're talking about the um, there's so 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 again, a, a large amount of Bernard Hooverman's work hasn't been is not particularly well known uh, in English speaking nations because it wasn't ever translated into English, and. He wrote uh, a book in French. Um, I've forgotten the name of it, but it's basically about mystery cats of Africa. Les Filans, encore, and Canu d'Afrique. The still unknown felines of Africa. And he says that throughout tropical Africa, no, in fact, not just tropical Africa, across a huge swathe of Africa, east to west, north to south, people of many different ethnicities and countries talk about, um, because we always have to remember Africa is a vast nation of over, I think it's over 40 Mm -hmm. countries. Um, People in many countries talk about seeing aquatic animals of some kind that have a sort of scaly covering a short head Mm -hmm. and protruding fangs and there's many different uh, local names for these kinds of creatures the one that's best known in the cryptozoological literature is dingonek which is used in kenya i think for this kind of animal and hooverman Mm -hmm. says that these kinds of creatures are the 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 accounts concerned people are describing aquatic mammals aquatic furry mammals Mm -hmm. not like uh naked skinned animals like manatees or dolphins they're describing furry animals where the fur is kind of clumped together to form this scale scale like look and that they are describing predatory Mm -hmm. mammals and um he theorizes that these are aquatic saber-toothed cats uh, of which are which are that's not a thing that we know about right <laughs> there's no that we don't we mm-hmm. we have like many many fossil we have many fossil species of um saber-toothed cat but we don't have any that we know were aquatic there's no indication of, of it, uh, like, you know that any of them any of them were specialized for aquatic habits so i think that's really really common in the cryptozoological cryptozoological literature and especially in Hooverman's writings is that cryptids are not just said to be this is a saber-toothed cat they're also they're mm-hmm. also said to be specific new kinds of animals that have got quite an elaborate and novel evolutionary backstory so Hooverman says given that saber-toothed cats competed with the conical-toothed cats, like, you know, the group that includes, you know, lions and tigers and whatnot, he says, wouldn't it make sense that, mm-hmm. oh, and by the way, the saber teeth were surely, like, quite an encumbrance, quite difficult for them to make a normal living with, especially when they had to compete with other predators. Isn't it likely that they therefore mm-hmm. evolved in some other direction that isn't necessarily 
um, supported by the fossil record, what about the idea that they did actually become uh, aquatic? And if this was so, wouldn't it make sense that they kind of, you know, evolved uh, flippers and a paddle-like tail? You know, we already know that pinnipeds, seals, sea lions, and walruses, they are aquatic members of carnivora. They're, they're part of the same group as bears and weasels. Um, so what about the idea that cats could have done this also? And yeah, he says that all of these aquatic monsters uh, across Africa are this kind of creature. He says a similar thing actually happened in South America, and that, that explains various aquatic monsters from South America. And so if you accept this, and I, I think only a handful of people ever took it seriously, but if you do accept it, then it means that included within the pantheon of cryptids, according to humans, are these kind of walrus-like saber-toothed tropical aquatic saber-toothed cats so again that's taken seriously by hoovermans and just to finish very briefly on this um the my kind of like favorite the 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 secret trick i have up my sleeve which no one else is ever able to deploy when it comes to cryptozoological (laughs) accounts is go back and read the original accounts right <laughs> that's that's the answer to like anyone yeah, yeah. i'm the only yeah. person that's ever figured this out go back and read the original accounts i'm being of course extremely facetious sure. <laughs> yeah and if you do that you basically never find that the accounts support this like i've referred to this several times as a house of cards it's like hoovermans mm. and his uh, fellow theorizers they built this like massive elaborate grandiose houses of cards, many 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 cards based on this this Mm -hmm. paper thin foundation and it's like go back and read the original accounts they don't describe what people think they did describe and the accounts concerned the the alleged you know these the the origin what's the origin for this it's people coming up with some very very vague descriptions of aquatic animals seen at distance which don't sound like Mm -hmm. cats at all or it's based on indigenous accounts where we're getting some weird like sort of 10th generation version told through many different you know interpretations and translations and we don't actually know the the context of the original story from the people who you know originally had it as a legend or a tall tale not as a straightforward eyewitness mm-hmm. account it's the kind of thing it's fantastic and it would be wonderful for the world if the world was like this it'd be so amazing uh you know if if every little mm-hmm. evolutionary thing that could happen did happen <laughs> how nifty uh but you know it's that's i don't think reality sort of comports does it um but that's it is yeah. it's, it's fun to imagine i think your illustrations you know bring that home really nicely so uh, it, it's it's cool to see. Well, if you took this seriously, here's what it would look like. Uh, that's that's nifty. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti, and I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about, the stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. 
Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and are useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur <laughs> injuries, paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. But let's turn to American sloth. Darren, why are Americans so lazy? So- <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that about yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, when when um, uh, Europeans uh, first, you know, became aware of North American fauna, there was you've surely heard of this there was there was uh, so referring to living animals there was this idea that north america was basically oh you mean like during jefferson's time yes yes yeah yeah this idea i forget what it was called there was a name for this hypothesis that that north america was was rubbish it was really that was the uh oh what is his name the uh um is the french uh buffon maybe uh, yes. Um, uh, uh, hmm. It was the degeneracy of American that's fauna. It. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. That's yeah, exactly yeah. it. Degeneracy. Ameri- still, American. It's in degeneracy. there somewhere. Nice. I just got to rattle it yes. around. <laughs> <laughs> American degeneracy. So, yeah, all of your animals are terrible. They're all small. They're all weak versions of our fine, upstanding, proud uh, European versions. And uh, and then not to, mm. obviously. <laughs> let's not start talking about you know what Europeans said of. Uh, uh, Australasian, uh, Australian. that was, that was <laughs> yeah, even yeah. Ho- even horrible yeah. wasn't it even more bizarrely biased mm. so you know obviously today we can uh, you know feel quite good about ourselves saying how ridiculous this idea was but um but yeah the <laughs> the, the, the yeah the the idea that, that North America might have something as exciting as, as sloths uh, that giant sloths uh, mind you um wasn't wasn't dreamt of and of course most of us are familiar with the story about yeah Jefferson uh, thinking that uh, Megalonics was actually a great cat, and that the sloth giant sloth claws mm. were actually the the claws of a a cat that must have stood about oh my god elephant sized yeah. lions. Um, wow. Yes, and today, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, the the sloth world uh, is 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 exciting in terms of how many sloths we know were living in north central and south america um until until the in until the end of the pleistocene until about thirteen thousand years ago ish um doing many different things uh, at many different body sizes with quite an exciting range of uh, behaviors and um uh, that that kind of like new fast moving developing world of sloths 
doesn't necessarily reflect what's been said in the cryptozoological literature. That kind of uh, harkens back to a sort of more traditional view that that um, sloths of several kinds might have hung on in in remote um, South America. I mean, in, in the the cryptozoological mm-hmm. ideas about sloths surviving to modern times really do hark back to um, the first European exploration of South America. Uh, you know, early we're talking about early eighteen hundreds, where they are finding sloth remains in Patagonia and Chile, and saying that um, yeah, these animals are clearly you know they, they've they've only just gone extinct. They clearly overlapped extensively with people. All of this stuff, of course, is is now um, uh, hasn't proven to be exactly you know. Quite yeah, yeah. I mean, in their defense, they did find what skin and bones in a cave that that they didn't know how to date at the time, right? So. It, it, it seemed plausible, but it looks like a lot of this Mapinguari, uh, the sort of folk monster of Brazil in the Amazonian, but it's, it, all that talk is coming from, it seems like one guy, David Oren, who's, I think, an ornithologist, uh, um, who, uh, as you say in your text, uh, seems to only talk about the facets of those sightings or, or the story that match his idea that this was really a, a surviving giant sloth, but... Uh, you know, the the monster is very clearly folklore. It's got a giant mouth in its belly. And we talked about this in episode 194 with the uh, paleontologist, Dr. Richard Farinha. Uh, oh, I, know, yeah. I know, I know, Richard. He's a good memory. He, well, he's <laughs> invited. He invited me to barbecue, uh, and I like. I'm just dying to become wealthy enough to travel down there and have some. So, <laughs> wow. Mm. Huh. I, I sense uh, the conflict. Still got a few like, on the. <laughs> well, sorry, I was going to say I sense a conflict as to whether you should say sloth or sloth because this, of course, is the the great uh, the great lament of the Americas. It, it, well, it is. I was trying to to humor you. Uh, <laughs> I really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Um, between the three of us here, we've all got different pronunciations. Uh, yeah, Karen, what's the official Australian <laughs> pronunciation? We say breaker. sloth. Oh, so, oh dear! Yeah. Wow, goodness! Laying the side goodness. down. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we say aquatic. So, you know, that's why it's always funny to me when people say, you think that I'm a British English because uh, the the different Englishes are just so separate, so different and really uh, evolved. So it, they're yeah. quite different. And uh, I guess if you're not exposed to them, then it's difficult to differentiate. But yeah. uh, we've still got a few creatures on the list that we'd like to look at and uh, um Wolves of the Sahara. Mm. <laughs> Tell us about them. Yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure from from where he does identify his sources, but but Bernard Hooverman's um, um, says that various people across the across the Sahara talk about a wolf-like animal, and there's various local names for it, and he suggests that there could be mm. some. Wolf-sized, um, brownish, desert-dwelling wolf-like canid. So it's not a particularly remarkable uh, cryptid if it does exist. But here's the spin on this, and I, I don't know if this is new to you, mm-hmm. but this is a thing where he actually he's actually completely right. This this isn't controversial now. Um, we know for absolute certainty that uh, this was only published officially i'm gonna say around about 2008 ish 
there are wolves in the Sahara. So it turns out that the wolf is not, uh, 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 excluding the Americas, the wolf isn't just European and Asian. Uh, there are wolves um, across northern Africa, in Egypt, as far south as Djibouti, mm. I think, Eritrea. Um, now, people for a long time, since Victorian times, have, have been very confused as to the status of a particular kind of um, wolf-like jackal. There's a, a North African and European large jackal called the golden jackal, which looks quite wolf-like. And some populations of, in, incidentally, over the last couple of decades, this species, the golden jackal, has been spreading northwards throughout Europe. When I was a kid, it was around the fringes of the Mediterranean. And today it's as far north as I think Hungary. Um, it's certainly been um, photographed in kind of like snowy places in, in cold and you know, cold northern Europe. So okay. this, this animal has staged a yeah, sort of like European invasion over, over the last few decades. Wow. But so, yeah, that, that's I did a cool not story. know that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Canis aureus, the golden jackal. There's, and there's some populations of the golden jackal that are very wolf like and yeah, people said, wait a minute, could it actually be that rather than being wolf-like populations of the golden jackal, some of these are actually misidentified wolf populations. Does the does the and- jackal run or does mm. the jackal lope? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> moving on. They do both. They do both. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, under yes. the table. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, so cut a long story short. Yes, it turns out that, that some of these wolf-like canids of northern Africa uh, are actually members of the wolf species. Now, the wolf Canis lupus mm-hmm. uh, over the course of the twentieth century generally thought to be, you know, present throughout North America, present throughout Europe, and the whole of Asia. Uh, and now North Northern Africa as well. Uh, this is probably a species complex. It probably contains actually sort of three or four different species belonging to different branches of the uh, wolf domestic dog you know, part of the dog family tree. Um, so yeah, like even in North America, mm-hmm. you know, the the eastern wolf uh, might be a different species from the. Uh, that's sorry, that's a tangent. Don't want to go down that way because that mm-hmm. that involves the red wolf and it involves the hybrid between the coyotes and the um, the eastern wolves. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. North African wolves, Saharan wolves are a thing, and it could well be that this yeah. creature included as a cryptid in Hoofman's list does include that actual real taxonomic. Um, form yeah so that's quite an exciting that's a hey that's yeah. a success for cryptozoology yeah hey well done yeah. <laughs> i found one <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well we always have to mark this when we find them for real that's that's uh that's yeah good. that's good well this, this sort yeah. of blends nicely into talking about black dogs i don't want to go too deep because mm. obviously first of all we've covered black dogs quite a few times on the show but you did a really great mm-hmm. post a really nice long long post about black dogs on tetzu do you want to talk about that oh thanks uh yeah yeah i'll, I'll try and keep it brief but um yeah i've been wanting to do this for quite a long time because i i find this a fascinating phenomenon the idea that um uh mostly in europe but in other parts of the world including in the u.s uh, including in parts of countries of, of South and uh, Central America as well, and then cross-continental Europe, people 
claim these encounters with giant shaggy coated black spectral hounds typically seen in rural locations <laughs> typically they're they're said to be you know really big like the size of a sort of small cow or as tall as a table and they're said to be really scary and um um, I like the legend. I like the fact that they are included uh, sometimes in books that do cover mystery animals. In Janet and Colin Board's famous Alien Animals uh, book, a really good source of um, uh, reports on all kinds of things that most people would regard as cryptids, that the black dog is kind of included in there as if it's on par with, you know, lake monsters and Bigfoot and whatnot. But um, is also at the same time included in books on ghosts and the paranormal as if it sort of should belong to that club uh, in instead and the the encounters do sound more like ghosty stories they sound more like you know the, the the creature faded from vision as the person was looking at it or it disappeared mysteriously or it appeared in a setting that's not at all in keeping with the cryptid you know like there's there's an account of a young woman sat on the edge of sat at the edge of the bed and a black dog appears in the bedroom and walks out through the door and disappears mm. as it goes into another room and, and they said to have glowing eyes like most typically red which of course is another sort of staple of um uh, mystery animal uh, account or fan- phantom style mm. animal accounts so 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 what's the deal there is this uh, in in the article that i wrote tetrapod zoology i uh, did suggest the possibility that um could it actually be people um experiencing something weird in the environment you know they're being affected by something in the environment and thinking they're seeing a dark mm-hmm. object which they then describe as the black dog um which is you know similar to the scientific explanations that have been put forward for um you know ghosts and other phantoms you know maybe people are experiencing infrasound or electromagnetic phenomena or something along those lines and thinking air quotes around thinking you know they're sort of perceiving something at the edge of vision that they that they interpret as a as a phantom i did offer that explanation but i'm i'm really interested in the idea that i'm interested in the fact that some cryptozoologists have decided to say well wait a minute could this actually be a cryptid could actually really could people actually really have been seeing these things and could they be real flesh and blood animals which i would i would think it's clear from what i've said so far that that's kind of a non-starter but um nevertheless people have suggested that and uh, i wanted to discuss that and um, see where it goes it doesn't and it doesn't go very far but nevertheless i wanted to (laughs) yeah yeah Speaking of dogs, uh, or or at least giant hound-like creatures, we should talk about your work with Labette, uh, the Labette d'Augevermont. Ah, very good. Bon he dear. just likes to say it. Bernard <laughs> Vivermont. Yes. 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 Labette. The Beast of Gévaudan, um, which is a absolutely remarkable tale. I mean, yeah, for people that haven't Well, the whole animal was quite remarkable. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, I get it. I'm, I'm always, always a few steps behind. I knew he was going to go there. <laughs> its tail and the rest of it was remarkable. But yeah, the fact that there was this, this creature in medieval France that supposedly killed... I have forgotten the number. I don't know if I do you remember, but it's it's it's, it's, it's variable, but more than a hundred probably. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think right. legitimately more than a hundred. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, and they're they're blamed 
And I think we can be quite confident that the, it might not be absolutely accurate that this one creature killed all these people, but the fact that it's said to have roamed the countryside and there are these fair, various different descriptions mm-hmm. of it and modern interpretations, modern attempts to explain the the beast say that it could have been misidentifications of uh, particularly dangerous wolves. Um, again, in keeping with what we we're just saying about the diversity of wolves, some of the European wolf populations don't look exactly like wolves as we normally think of them. Some of them have, have got like unusual um, markings in terms of how much brown and how much black and how much white they've got on them, which could be consistent mm-hmm. with some of the accounts of the beast. Labette. Then you've got this claim that um, some aspects of the way in which the creature is described make it sound very different from uh, a, a canid. You know, remember the dog family entirely. That some some people have argued seriously in recent years that could it have been uh, an escaped hyena um, or a, a, a lion. And there's this, I've forgotten the name of the book. There is one scholarly book published on it this century, which says that, um, yeah, it sounds like people were actually being attacked and killed by a, a, a lion wandering around the French countryside, which sounds absolutely remarkable and also isn't consistent mm-hmm. with the fact that people were able to sort of like put up a fight. And, you know, there's the story of the woman who climbed on its back and squeezed its testicles and that caused the animal to like give up the attack. Well, if you tried that on a lion, I don't think you'd come out of that with a story. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. Uh, I, I, I yeah. think haven't lions lions have like accidentally jumped on people and killed them dead it's it's uh, it's really hard to to who oh yeah of course there are people that have survived lion attacks but breaking news listeners lions are dangerous (laughs) (laughs) fact interesting story anyway yes and then my gotta try something yeah uh, i think um and what hooverman's um uh, touches on at least and again i don't have the text in front of me but what he alludes to and uh, again, we explored this in the Cryptozoological on the book, the book I did a few years back, and I have explored in this this new project, is based on some of the drawings done at the time and some of the descriptions done at the time, uh, Hoovermans and others were prepared mm-hmm. to endorse the idea that maybe this was actually something completely new. Think about it. If it's in his, it's in his lists, which is why we're talking about it, it's not in there. Mm-hmm. Like, an escaped lion or a population of like ravenous wolves those aren't things that should be regarded as cryptids it's in his list because he's saying that hey everyone this could actually be something completely new some entirely new kind of carnivoran mammal and there's these famous drawings that show it as this long tailed tufted tail at the end striped uh long-faced predatory mammal which doesn't match anything known to science is it some new kind of, say, giant, like, cursorial, long-legged member of, like, the mustelid family, the weasel family? That's kind of what's implied. So that's actually what I've done. I've said, wow, that's... <laughs> that's uh, In the Cryptozoological, we proposed a scientific name for it, Crypto... No, I can't remember the name. Okay, I can't remember the name. We came, we came up with a, a new proposed scientific <laughs> name for it. There's a couple of cryptozoological articles in the the gray literature that do explore this they say could it have been some new kind of uh you know entirely new kind of giant predatory mustelid unknown from the fossil record 
The mm. answer is the answer is no, but um, <laughs> but it's a it's a fun idea and another example of this yeah. really extraordinary creature building that exists within cryptozoology. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, I think if we're going to get one more creature. Um, I think you've written already about uh, weird dolphins and whales. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So there's um, there's there's a there's a good healthy list of um, alleged crypto cetaceans, and um, in his 1968 book, which was the the famous kind of like follow up to on the track of unknown animals. Uh, his in the wake of the sea serpents. Um, Hooverman says that um, we really should take seriously the idea that people throughout history have seen giant unknown sea creatures. And he um, he points to the fact that a long list of people that we should you know kind of listen to like people who know what they're talking about marine biologists and other and other sort of serious writers they've endorsed this as well and indeed is it not the case that boring ordinary zoologists and biologists having are, are totally prepared to accept the existence of um a list of weird cetaceans that have been observed and yet remain unknown from specimens so, they, so therefore they're in the same ballpark according to his argument they're in the same ballpark as the great sea serpent and the super super giant giant squid that he endorsed and so on and he lists these various cryptocetaceans they include a, a tall finned blunt-headed animal seen on the sky expedition to the antarctic in, in 1902 or something and a couple of peculiar uh, peculiarly patterned uh, tropical uh, dolphins and killer whale type animals seen in you know the red sea and around the coasts of India and, and uh, the Indian Ocean coast of Africa. He says, look, look, zoologists accept these animals, so why shouldn't they accept the um, yeah, the sea serpent as well? And it's like, well, what, well, wait a minute. Zoologists don't accept those animals. In fact, if you look at this, um, this list of... Um, <laughs> alleged crypto cetaceans and this this was actually one of the first things i ever really wrote about in cryptozoology i did a long series of articles back in the early 1990s about um, mystery whale sightings it's all of the um accounts are again they're not as simple as we can be absolutely sure that it was a description of an unknown species they are accounts that are they have their own vagaries attached to them or there's some ambiguity about um the the coloration that was concerned and i don't think many people know that there's round about 100 living species of whales and dolphins and on that list there's going on as a conservatively there's something like 20 species that are only known from a handful of good unambiguous eyewitness um accounts you know made by qualified observers and which involve you know good photography good color photography there's a long list of living whales and dolphins where even now we're still a bit unsure about what their exact appearance like uh, exact appearance in life is like then you've got the fact that a lot of these animals um yeah if, if you're a big marine animal and you're, you know, a generalist in ecological terms. Well, you, basically, you, the world almost literally is your oyster. Uh, animals like bottlenose dolphins, killer whales, blue whales, they occur globally. And 
there's all this there's this long list of things that make them really variable according to the exact conditions of you know the, the lighting and the color of the sea you know they, they look very different in antarctica as opposed to you know the bay of bengal or something and then there's also subpopulations of these animals that also look really different and for animals like you know the, the killer whales the ultimate example of this it's turning out that there's, there's so much genetic variation so much diversity within that group of animals that it might actually be um, multiple subspecies or species included in an animal like the killer whale so um, the as is often the case for wide-ranging animal species the populations that we know best the ones of killer whales you know the the ones we've seen on tv or or in um, parks or around the coasts of the usa or western europe or what have you they are the best studied most familiar populations but weird ones that live say you know in the the southern ocean in obscure bits of uh, the arctic or what have you uh will look different the the eye patch is different the actual animals can be like the white bits of the killer whale can be tawny brown or, or yellow. Um, mm. So, yeah. So quite a few of the crypto whales on the list are, uh, there's quite a few caveats in there, but they're sort of, you know, they're in that list of, of vagueness. It's like, are you sure you are actually describing something that, that could have been new rather than a local variant? Yeah. Um, of animals that are really poorly known and we just don't have as much information as we might like at this point and uh, and i'm you know we're we're looking at this now in a very privileged age where we've got all this new data hooverman's is looking at reports from you know the mid 1900s when their knowledge was rudimentary and th- i don't know why i said it that way i think rudimentary is the more normal way of saying it but um where things like underwater photography and aerial photography and color photography are only just being employed in the study of wildlife right i mean never forget that it's like uh the the Mm -hmm. whales weren't really appreciated in their true form until i think they were first photographed underwater uh big whales were i think the 1950s or 60s so everything prior to that time yeah you've got to think of it in a kind of they just don't have the data that today we have well right right fair enough and 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 all the new stuff we see like we'll see exciting new animals on twitter or wherever we see videos but usually those don't include things like how big is this animal you know how deep are you when you're looking at this animal how likely am i to see this animal in real Mm -hmm. life you know but but we're seeing it for the first time it's fantastic i don't want to you know belittle Mm. the the work of those people doing that research it's fantastic i mean as the amount of biodiversity in the real world uh you know it doesn't demand that we create more but yet (laughs) it seems to be a very human impulse (laughs) yeah we do yeah in all seriousness (laughs) so what are you working on what's going on that that you might want to talk to listeners about well the thing that has kept me busy over the past couple of years is of course the uh Apple TV Plus slash BBC Studios TV series, Prehistoric Planet, mm, which um, popular was here. A great, a great, yeah, very privileged to have worked on that, thrilled with the final product. And that's the that's the thing that's mostly kept me mostly kept me busy. But in the background, I have um, managed to finish various technical projects and various books. So uh, two books in particular. Um, Mesozoic Arts, which I edited together with 
My good friend and colleague Steve White is published by Bloomsbury Press and will be out later this year. So Mesozoic Art, it's a giant book of um, up and coming new paleo artists. So our kind of new cutting edge vision of what uh, animals of prehistoric times were like. That's that's been keeping me busy. That's done. And I've also recently finished a book that will be published by the Natural History Museum in London. It's called Ancient Sea Reptiles. Now, a couple of years ago, I did, together with the Natural History Museum's uh, Professor Paul Barrett, I did a book called Dinosaurs, How They Lived and Evolved, which is the current kind of industry standard go to work on this is our current knowledge of dinosaurs uh, in terms of everything we understand about their history and their evolution dinosaurs how they lived and evolved and i've always wanted to do a similar book on mesozoic marine reptiles so at the same time as dinosaurs are the kind of uh, most prominent group of animals on land in the seas you've got the the the, the long-necked plesiosaurs and the shark-shaped ichthyosaurs and other groups as well obviously the mosasaurs this group of swimming lizards in the cretaceous and um i've submitted many proposals to try and get a book like that off the ground and was always unsuccessful and until now because yes mm. I, i've done it and that will be out early next year so ancient sea reptiles um, great that's a big deal for me congratulations thanks so much <laughs> Thank you. Well, as always, it's 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 a, it's always fun to talk to you, Darren. I, so I'm sorry it took so long to get you back on here. It is, yeah. Well, no worries. I really appreciate it. It was great talking to both of you. Thank you for having me. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and I'm Karen Stoltzner. Today, you heard an interview with Darren Nash talking about his art project trying to document all of the cryptids described by Bernard Huvelmans. Darren's work is available at his Patreon page. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as When Things Go Wrong, Legends of the Old West, and Food with Mark Bittman. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you so much for making Monster Talk a part of your listening life.
This has been a Monster House presentation.